0: So this is the sermon I did not enjoy writing, and I don't really want to preach, and you probably don't want to hear, so I'm going to pray. (laughs) Father, we ask this morning in your love and your grace and your mercy that you would meet us where we are. And Father, we pray that the soil of our hearts this morning will be soft towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hands. God gave us hands. Hands to create. Hands to love. Hands to help. Hands to give. But our hands we have misused. Hands to create now destroy. Hands made to love, now hate. Hands made to help, now reject. Hands made to give, now grab. Hands made to protect, now let down. But God reached out his loving, open hands to a destructive world. He picked up his fallen creation and placed his open hands around them. But they made him a captive and nailed his open hands to a cross. And they mocked him. And then Jesus, God's only son, died. But Jesus did not remain on the cross, he rose. And lives now he walks through the streets stretching out his loving open hands to all who will come to him. What will you do? Will you come to him with open hands to live his way? Or will your hands remain closed to live your way? The choice Is yours. Take a look at your hands for a moment. It's not a, that's a command, right? It's not a suggestion. It's very biblical. Did you know that when you were born, you were born with your hands closed? In fact, when you were born, your hands were tightly clenched. And if you've ever tried to do this on a newborn baby, it's surprisingly difficult to open the fingers of a newborn baby's hand. Baby's hand remains clenched in the first month of their life, apparently. Only after two or three months will their fingers begin to unfold. After five months, a baby's hand is open most of the time. And if ever you've put your finger into the grip of a tiny baby's hand, you will realise that they hold on quite naturally to your finger and they grip it very tightly, don't they? And often it feels like they won't let go. By the time you're a toddler, you're good at grabbing toys and keeping hold of them tightly, aren't you? And toddlers very quickly learn to say a very important word when someone else wants their toy. Mine. You might have heard this poem. It's the toddler's property law. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If you want it, it's mine. It's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If it looks like mine, it is mine. I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. If I'm building something, all the pieces are mine. If it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) As you grow older, you learn to hold on to the handlebars of your bike. As you grow older still, you learn to hold on to the hand of a boyfriend or a girlfriend. At university, you take the first steps to freedom, and you hold on to lots of new things. And maybe you clutched your bright new qualification. As you begin a career, you grab onto the bottom rung of the ladder and you learn to hang on. And then you begin climbing, rung after rung after rung. Often life then seems more about clutching and climbing. How high can I go? Then along comes retirement where maybe, hopefully, you'll hang on to some golf clubs. (laughs) Or maybe a frame of some kind just to keep you steady. And maybe, maybe, you'll end your life holding the edge of a hospital bed. Who knows? When we die, we relax our grip. Life can easily become rush and grab and hang on, can't it? And the winners are those who can hang on to the most stuff. Maybe, though, we don't just do it with things or with stuff do we maybe we grab hold on to others their time their attention their affection maybe too we become grabbers of conversation friendships opportunities maybe we become grabbers in our workplaces insisting on a generous salary for a mediocre job Maybe maybe we never get past saying "Mine." Wonder if we ever do it in church. How many times do we criticize the church or leave a church which doesn't give me what I want or expect? I want to grab what I think, but when it doesn't measure up, which, of course. It never will. I get upset. And the church, which actually is here to serve the purposes of a generous, loving, magnificent God, suffers. Perhaps some people spend their whole life grabbing. And maybe Samson was one of them. Chapter 14 of Judges, beginning to read at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and there saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or, or among your own people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Tim- Timnah, uh, together with his father and mother, as they approached the vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Samson, you remember, was called by God to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samson was set apart from birth to live a life devoted to God. But it seems that much of his time, Samson spent grabbing whatever he could get. And it certainly seems to be the way he approaches his marriage. If you've heard me do marriage services, I quite often start a marriage talk with this quote. Success in marriage is more than finding the right person, it is about being the right person. Success in marriage is more than finding the right person, it's about being the right person. It suggests that marriage is less about getting and more about giving, and it's also a very biblical concept, you might be surprised to know. Paul expresses it this way, and just in case you're wondering... I'm being biased here, right? Go read the bit before this in Ephesians, because that's all about the women. This bit I'm reading about the guys, but it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Paul doesn't write just to men, he writes to men and women, I just chose that bit. But it seems that Samson is only interested in what he can get. Now, just a word of caution, because we must be careful how we judge Samson and the way that he lived, okay? Uh, he lived in a very different time, and a very different culture, and he did not have the help of the New Testament to go and guide him and teach him. So he couldn't, read, he couldn't have read Paul that like I've just read to you. He didn't have that. Uh, he was, to be fair to him, a product of both his time and his culture. However, that said, he does appear to be demanding and insistent in a way that is unusual even for his time. The word translated get in verse 2 literally means to seize or to take. So another way of saying what Samson said is go grab her or go seize her for me. Here's a challenging thought. I wonder how many times we dress up our selfishness as followers of Christ by throwing into the mix that what we want also happens to be what God wants. I wonder how often we dress up our preferences or opinions as somehow being more spiritual than someone else's preferences or opinions. I wonder how many times my way actually becomes God's way. Samson, it seems doesn't seem to get any better after demanding to get a wife. Reading on from, chapter, uh, from verse 7. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass and saw in it a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands as he went and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they ate too. But he did not tell them he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass because, of course, you're not allowed to touch something dead as a Nazarite. So he's broken his vow that's the point there okay now his father went down to see sorry now his father went down to see the woman and there samson held a feast as was customary for young men when the people saw him they chose 30 men to be his companions let me tell you a riddle samson said to them if you can give me the answer within 7 days of the feast i will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes if you can't tell me the answer you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes Tell us a riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, Out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not get the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. That's a bit shocking, isn't it? Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me, you don't really love me, you have given me the people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't explained it to my father or mother, he replied, so why would I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. It's not a great start to a wedding marriage, is it, really? (laughs) So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. "'Before sunset on the seventh day, and the men of the town said to him, "'What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion?' "'Samson said to them, "'If you had not ploughed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle.' "'Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. "'He went down to Ashkelon, struck down thirty men there, stripped them of everything, "'and gave their clothes to the men who had explained the riddle. "'Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. "'And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions.' who had attended him at the feast. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her her to your companions. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. It's quite shocking, isn't it, the Bible, if you take the time to read it. (laughs) So Samson rose a party for seven days to celebrate his wedding. But it becomes one massive argument. Now, the wedding night would have been the seventh night of one of these wedding receptions. But Samson gets angry and storms out before that never gets to his wedding night. Before he leaves, he makes a speech, in which, in case you missed it, he calls his wife a cow, that's a heifer, and accuses her of sleeping with all the best men, probably 30 of them. So when he says, you plough with my heifer, that's what he means, right? It's in the Bible. So he's accusing of sleeping with all 30 of these guys. Angry and resentful, he goes on a killing spree so he can steal the clothes of the dead men that he is now obliged to give to the men who solved his riddle. Sometime later, or later on as I read it, at the beginning of chapter 15, probably means some months later, he turns up at his wife's house. Did you notice that? He brings her a gift He brings her a goat, and you begin to think, oh, maybe he's doing better. Um, A goat would be the equivalent of something like a box of chocolates. So he's doing all right. He's turned up with a box of chocolates. Until you understand that a goat was also used to pay a prostitute. So he's bought her a present and said, here you go, dear. Have what I would give a prostitute. And of course, later on, if you've read the story, he does visit a prostitute. Not a good gift for a wife, is it really? Oh, well, that will be my opinion. Perhaps what's happening here is Samson now is demanding what is rightfully his. He goes, I'm going into my wife's room. Well, he is married after all. Technically, he is married. The, the dowry was paid, the feast has been celebrated, he is married to, to this lady. But in the months he had been away, and probably as a direct result of his behavior at the wedding his wife has been given away to somebody else at this point on my notes i just wrote man this is a mess imagine having that as your wedding celebration like she okay so his father is probably wrong to give samson's wife away actually cuz she's already been legally married to samson it may be that he's actually motivated by selfish motives because he knows if he gives her away, he'll get another dowry. So maybe that's what's going on for him. And Samson now is maybe having to face the consequences of his actions. So he's behaved really badly and it's coming home to roost. Acting as if he hated his wife, which is what he did, has consequences. So here's the question that it might be good to ask ourselves. How do my actions affect the people around me? The more I think about it and the more I reflect upon that question, the more it haunts me. And I've come to the conclusion that the more I think I'm right about something, the less likely I am to be aware of or bothered about the truth that my actions have consequences and consequences for the people around me. Perhaps another way of saying that is the more convinced I become, of my own opinion, the greater the collateral damage. And then I realize to my horror that I find myself in the story of Samson again. And then I begin to think, well, maybe there's not so much difference between me and Samson. That's a frightening thought. Samson appeared to be blind to the trail of devastation he left behind when he demanded what was rightfully his. We live, I think, in a time where we are very aware of our rights, don't we? We hear it all the time. We are becoming a sue-happy society. If something goes wrong, someone must be to blame. No such thing as an accident anymore, is there? Well, it's always somebody's fault, isn't it? And it's never usually mine. <laughs> there is, of course, a balance to be struck. Sometimes things need to be and should be changed. sometimes situation and people need to be held accountable. That is true. But demanding our rights can push us to unnecessary and unhelpful extremes. <laughs> Samson was married. He had rights. But how do you cultivate a healthy marriage? 1 Peter four 4.8 Love covers a multitude of sins. It's another illustration I sometimes give at weddings. There was a couple who'd been married for 60 years. And a young person said to the wife, how have you managed to live so well for 60 years? She said, oh, that's easy. When we were married, I wrote a list of 10 things I'd forgive him for, and every time he did something wrong, I said, lucky for you, that's on the list. (laughs) Love covers a multitude of sins, which perhaps suggests that we don't always demand our rights if we want to cultivate a healthy marriage or indeed any healthy relationship. Of course if we mess up in our relationships we can't simply demand that the other person who we have hurt forgives us. It's not our right to demand that. And facing the consequences of what we have done must be worked through not avoided. And I wonder how we are doing in cultivating healthy relationships. Samson was dominated by what he saw. He ruined his marriage, but then chose to demand what he thought was his by right. G.K. Chesterton once said this, to have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. To have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. Jesus had a right to the throne of heaven. But he chose to open his hands and give up his right and live a different way. And these words from Philippians will be very familiar to you. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being uh, united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if anything common in sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love Of God the Father. Jesus gave up his rights and allowed his open hands to be nailed to a cross. He had rights, but he gave them up to give us the opportunity to be right with God. Now, as far as I am aware, there was no song playing when Jesus gave up his life on the cross. What is common when I take funerals is that there are songs playing, usually at the beginning and at the end of the service and sometimes in the middle. According to a survey done by the Co-op Funeral Service, the most commonly chosen song to be played in a funeral service is My Way by Frank Sinatra. At the end of our lives, it seems that we most commonly want people to know that the best thing about our lives was that we lived them my way. Jesus' last words, according to John's gospel, it is finished. Roughly translated, it might mean this, I did it, I lived my Father's way. And now all people will know this, that he can be known by them because he loves them. And what a contrast to the way that Samson appears to have lived. Samson seemed to want to make his song my way. But I guess I'm wondering what song we will choose to live.